you guys who aren't on your feet, why don't you go ahead and stand up. Find somebody to tell them good morning.
Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you today. I'm glad you're here. Welcome to Carpenter's Way. If this is your first time with us, we want to give you a very special welcome and uh, tell you we're glad you're joining us. If you're on the internet, we're glad you're with us. Grab a Bible, and in a few minutes, we're going to be in James chapter 3, New Testament book, and uh, we will study that together. <clears throat> if you are in this room, would you grab your worship guide? I want to highlight a couple things that are upcoming that you need to be aware of. Uh, tonight is a worship night here at Carpenter's Way. Uh, Chad and about five or six worship leaders from the community every quarter, it seems like, uh, open up our house here and we just have a, a worship night and it is fantastic. So about five churches get together and others, of course, anybody's welcome. And uh, for one hour from six to seven, they just we just sing together and some scriptures read, but it is a wonderful, wonderful time. And uh, since there's no football and you're preparing your hearts, it looks like the teams are getting back. And since we have to root for the Astros. It's a good night to come out and be distracted that God is still on the throne. So that was, you know, sometimes the jokes ring funnier in my head. I can tell when they're sensitive issues. But anyway, that's tonight at uh, 6 o'clock, and uh, it's for anyone. So uh, come on out and join us. And uh, your kids, bring your kids out or your grandkids. It's, it's just a wonderful, wonderful evening. There is not child care, <coughs> excuse me, so... Um, plan for that as well. Um, a couple other things, uh, lots of stuff in there that you can read for yourself. I want to highlight men. We have our men's uh, uh, hangout coming up in a couple of weeks, the last Saturday of the month, the 30th, and uh, you will want to be at that. That is a wonderful time. Information in your worship guide on the back is directions. If you would let us know, though, that you're thinking about coming so we can plan food, um, you can sign up at the men's ministry table, um, or you can write a note and put in the worship or in the offering plate as it goes by, just so that we can uh, get a proper count and your name and phone number and all that stuff. So, uh, if you would do that, all the information you need is in there. Um, as you are aware, uh, just about every week or every two weeks, we put in the worship guide a ministry. Uh, and information on what God is doing in that ministry at the time. And one of our missionaries that we support specifically as a church is the Pregnancy Help Center. They, uh, we support them financially every month. Um, uh, we have uh, quite a few of our family that involved in ministry there. Um, Paula Havard, is, uh, who is Kip's wife, as you know, She's not singing this morning, is she? But she, uh, she's the executive director of it, and she's part of our church. Her husband is one of our pastors, and uh, just be praying for them. This is, a, this is such a significant ministry. You know, if you go back through Scripture, you see that God often works through tragedy and difficulty. And, you know, a crisis pregnancy is not a crisis birthing. And uh, this ministry uh, kind of, I mean, they do such a great job of... of um, threading that needle of coming alongside people in crisis pregnancies and giving them dignity and encouragement in a time of difficulty and fear and also offering them hope in Jesus Christ. And uh, it, is, it, would be, it would be a wonderful thing to offer people in crisis situations help. It is eternally wonderful when we can offer them hope. And uh, that's what this ministry does very, very well. We are honored. We are privileged as a church to have, and a community to have, to have the Pregnancy Help Center and the Mosaic Center and the Dream Center and ministries like that. God tell in our community that we can not only financially participate in, but pray for them and actively be involved with them. And we are in all, in all four of those ministries. And there's others as well that many of you guys are involved in, from SIS to, to, uh, to Love, Inc. And, and, uh, but uh, we, we just want to make you aware. We want you to be praying for these ministries. It's so easy to give as a church. You know, I want to remind you, when you give during our offering, this money doesn't just stay here. It goes all over the globe and some uh, significantly and in, in, uh, intentionally into community. But uh, 
But man, God is working. It's not just about money. It's really about what the Spirit of God is doing. So uh, put that on your, uh, on your refrigerator right next to the mosaic one from last week and, and be praying for them um, because these are, these are important stuff. Um, uh, let me, I'm going to go ahead and have our ushers come forward at this time for our offering. And uh, as they do, I want to highlight something that's coming up. In the first Sunday in May, I think that, I'm trying to think of the date. I think that's going to be May 1st. Is that right? The first Sunday in May? Um, that morning, we're going to have communion together. But instead of Bible study during the 11 o'clock hour, we're going to have you stay in here. Um, God, God designed a church not to be like this, actually. It's to, be commun- it's to build relationships. I mean, this is important, the teaching, but it's, it's not just here that it's done. In fact, I would argue that what we do outside of here is more important than what we do in here. You can read this and study this for yourself. You can turn on TV and watch a preacher. But, but the relationships that are built, um, having, having said that, um, it is incumbent upon us to make sure that we use every technology possible to build relationship and communication. And a few years ago, you remember, we gravitated to the city. We brought that in as a kind of an in-house network. And that has, uh, over the years, it's been excellent for our child um, when the kids check in, when parents check in their kids, of tracking that and all, uh, it's been pretty good. Uh, but uh, it's become a really good prayer communication. But for the rest of it, it's about a 20. Uh, it just, it's just big. It's hard to spend time. You, you really got to research it to figure out how it works. And about a month or two ago, uh, Jeff started, uh, we started talking as a staff. And Jeff got together with an organization that's involved also with our, our internet streaming uh, to develop an app that's on your smartphone that you push, and, it, and you can do anything on it from watching live. It'll have a button on there to watch us live on Sundays or watch archived services. So it's not like, okay, I have to get online. I have to go to the website. It, it does everything. You can even give on there. I mean, it's, uh, you can give twice as much. Just hit, you know, you can, you can whatever. Uh, but, it's, but it's so much easier, and it's so, you know, most of us have, have smartphones, and you can do it on there. We'll still have the Internet, but we're moving to that. And the design team with Jeff has just finished that. We've been testing it with the elders and some of our staff families. And on the 1st of May, because it's so important, we're going to have communion, and instead of Bible study, we're going to ask you all to come in and just hang here, adults, and then we're going to help you put it on your phones, and we're going to show you how to, how to use it. It's really, really easy, but we want it to be um, when somebody has a death or we need to feed somebody or take care of each other or when we have an emergency prayer request, this is going to be so much more effective, kind of like on Facebook when you get a message it has a one on it. That's what's going to happen. It's not going to be in your face, if, uh, uh, but it's going to be right there, and you can, you can make it talk to you as much as you want or as little. But it's really, really a great technology for us to have body life 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, we're going to actually connect it by chat to Jeff's phone, and 24 hours a day you have pastor on call. It is fantastic. If you're looking for a special song, Chad is going to be available 24 hours a day. And if you give an extra amount, he'll write you a song for your anniversary. It is incredible how intuitive this is. As for the pastor, you can watch any of my archive messages you want. Leave me alone. But, but, but we're just trying to build community, you understand? And this is going to be a great way to do it. And I think it's going to be easy. One of the problems we have is people always go, how do I get on? I forgot my password. This solves all those problems. Um, there, is, it, there is going to be prayer on there, and that is going to be password protected. But once you put it in, like Facebook or anything else, it's going to, it's going to be easy, and it'll connect with Facebook. So I kind of want to give you a heads up on that, that that is coming. Uh, and, uh, and so that, that morning on, on May 1st, you might want to bring your smartphone if you, if you don't bring it. We actually... 
<coughs> have Wi-Fi in this room, and it stops because so many of you bring your, your phone, so I don't even know if I have to admit, uh, say that. But, but uh, we'll work on that together that morning, and you'll be able to answer, ask questions and stuff. But it's, we're very excited about it. So <coughs> that does that for now. So, John, should we take the offering? Yeah, we should take the app. There's an app. There's an app for that. I forgot. I should have gone to John Rowan. No, he'd have been just as sarcastic. I, never mind. There's an app for that, too. There's going to be a Carpenter's Way sarcasm app is what there's going to be. All right. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for allowing us to be a part of this church. And, wow, even more, of course, letting us be a part of your family. But thank you for drawing us here this morning. There are no accidents in this room. Uh, each and every one of us that are here this morning are here by divine appointment. Uh, you have something to say to us specifically and personally. Uh, Father, we thank you for uh, just, just the technology and the people with the ability to lead our technology that we have. And, and uh, Lord, I thank you for, for Richard and his team that, that gets us on the Internet each week. And as we've transitioned over, there's certainly been some difficulty. And, but uh, we thank you for all that. And, and uh, God, thank you that, that, that you'll meet with us, whether we're here or in our living room. But, Father, thank you that we can gather and look at each other and pat each other on the back and pray for each other and, and, and spur each other on to love and good deeds, as you say in Hebrews. And, Father, thank you also for the giving of this church. And, Lord, they're given to you, and, and we're careful to use it for your glory uh, as you direct and guide. And I just ask you now, Father, to continue to provide for us as you have in the past. We, uh, we thank you for how good you have been to us. We thank you that we can have a worship night tonight. And uh, we're excited about that. And um, thank you for this weather and this time of the year. And God, just thank you for East Texas. It's a wonderful place to live. Uh, bless us, Lord. Uh, meet with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In you, my God, and then you give me rest. You are my refuge and my safety. My strength is in your name. Though I stumble, I never will fall. You hold me in your
this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ and God has given us this task of reconciling people to him for God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself no longer counting people's sins against them and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation so we are Christ's ambassadors God is making his appeal through us we speak for Christ when we plead come back to God for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. My soul finds rest in God alone. Salvation comes from Him. He is my rock, my I shall not be shaken. I am overwhelmed and I'm amazed. I cannot help but see. I am
thank you that you are our rock, you're our fortress, the place that we can run to in our time of need, place, God, that we can go and we know that we're safe, place that we can go and know, that God, that our sins aren't held against us. God, we are overwhelmed and we are amazed that you, in all of your glory and all of your splendor, choose to have a relationship with us. God, does um, as we stand here this morning and just contemplate this, I think the only response really is just surrender. And so God, this morning we, uh, whatever this really means, God, we want to surrender all. We want to surrender all and just lay it at your feet. 
to Jesus I surrender all to Him I freely give I will ever love and trust Him in His presence Come take me now. 
singing that, I was thinking, it is uh, really easy. If, if I were to take a microphone and walk around this room and I were to ask you one thing you wish was different about yourself, man, you picked that up right away. Everyone, you could think of something. In fact, think of something right now. I mean, you can just think of it in your head. It comes there. Wish I was thinner. Wish I was fatter. Wish I was taller. Wish my nose wasn't that large. Wish I looked like Pastor Mark. Whatever it is, why do you laugh at stuff like that? It's so hurtful. <laughs> but if if I then took the microphone and I stuck it in your face really fast and I said, what is one thing you really like about yourself? It would take you a couple minutes to get yourself together long enough to think of something. Because it is so much easier for us to attack ourselves. And I think sometimes that makes its way into how we communicate on Sunday mornings. And I want to begin by saying this morning, as I listened to you sing and as we sang together, especially that song, I want you to know that in all my time in ministry, I have met very few Christians who attend church on a regular basis and are involved in Bible study that don't want to be fully surrendered. I, I just think most believers, and, I, and pay attention because I'm going to say something really nice about Christians, I actually think most Christians want to sincerely serve the Lord. I think they want to be the best dad they can, the best mom they can, the best parent. I mean, I know we struggle as teens and we don't take it seriously, but when you get to a point of maturity to a degree, and when you get to a point where you understand God wants you to serve him or, or whatever it is, I think most believers actually want to do that, even if, when they struggle in sin. And I just want you to know that that's why grace is the way it is, and so you should take a deep breath and exhale, knowing that God has it all under control. When it comes to what we really fear at the beginning and why we get saved, it's been taken care of. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you have called out to him, he has, in fact, forgiven you. If you confess with your mouth, 1 John 1, 9 says, and if you confess with your mouth, I'm sorry, messing it up, he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This is what happens when you go off, off in a rabbit trail at first. You have been cleansed if you have confessed. If you have accepted his offer to forgive you, you have been cleansed. But I want to remind you, that when Jesus was sitting with the disciples in the upper room and he was preparing for the Passover meal, he starts washing their feet. And remember that conversation? And, and Peter says, don't wash my feet. You know, I should be washing your feet. And Jesus says, if you don't let me wash you, then you can't be part of my family. You're not part of my kingdom. And Peter then says, well, wash all of me. And then Jesus says, you've been washed. It's just your feet are dirty. And he, and he goes on to talk about this is about sin. It's a picture of sin. And the fact is, if you are here today, having accepted Jesus Christ's offer to forgive you, whether you are a bad Christian or a good one, you are his child. He has cleansed you from all unrighteousness. And I actually believe that most Christians, I really believe this, I mean evangelicals, biblical Christians, I think most of us want to do the right thing. But we, we, we then get in a fight with our spouse or we get, in a, we, we get in a bad situation or we get frustrated with taxes and we just lose our head. And then we just kind of go, well, that's just how I am. The book of James is written to believers to encourage them as believers to see that there are real blind spots in their lives. 
There's a real problem. And then he goes, and what he's doing is he's not saying, so fix these blind spots. He actually is cutting down surgically after he makes the evidence. It's like a big case. And he says this and this and this specifically, and I'll mention it in a minute. But then he gets down to the real issue, which is their loyalties are divided between what God wants for, for the world and them in it and what they want for themselves or believe they should, ex- uh, they should expect for themselves. That is the battle of everyone in this room, is it not? Even if this morning you go, you sang that song with complete purity of heart. I give it all to you. Do what you want to do. We really, really don't mean that because our flesh doesn't want God to, to do a Stephen on us. If you walk out of here this morning and rocks start being hurled at you by people who don't like Christianity, you're going to be, you're going to be, you're going to react in, in probably until the Holy Spirit completely takes over. You're going to react in the flesh. If, if somebody keyed, Maybe martyrdom's different, but if somebody keyed all of our cars this morning with 666s, we would go out and we would be pretty ticked off. What's wrong with our culture? I remember growing up in the Bible Belt when people would be in church and then key your car after. The days. We, we, just, we just live with a certain expectation of what we should get in life, and that blinds us sometimes because we excuse we excuse frustration over bad service and telling a waitress off as, well, I'm paying for this. And that's life. That's normal. It's just not godliness. And that's the difficulty. And I want to rem- tell you that my prayer for us as we continue through scriptures is that we, I can convince you as God's kids that your battle with sin has been dealt with. Now it's battle with your flesh. That is the battle. And it's not a battle for heaven and hell. It's a battle for loyalty and commitment and surrender and and contentment and peace and hope and joy that comes just by trusting that God has it even when your car gets keyed. That he is the God of the little details. Um, We are actually over halfway through our study in James. And boy, nobody's happier than the pastor. Uh, it has been, for me, very, very eye-opening. This book wasn't just written by a guy named James to scattered, believing Jews throughout the world, but it was left by God for us to read. And it may not have been written to us, but it is certainly written for us. And what have we learned? That these folks, way back in the time of our mother church, had divided hearts just like we do. They were concerned... um, about, about their living experience. And James, James had heard about it or seen it, and he writes to them about it. And you remember some of the evidence of his concern, of a divided heart. How they responded to trouble in their life showed that they didn't really trust that God had it under control. How they talked with God showed that their loyalty was divided between him and their own felt needs and desires. They only asked for what they wanted, not for his will. We'll get more into that in chapter 4. He saw by how they reacted to folks around him and seemed to ignore the Holy Spirit or God's word planted in them. And when they did listen, he says, don't just be hearers of the word implanted in you, be doers of the word. So he's like us. He hears, they hear verses and then they go on going, man, that's a great verse. Great message, pastor. What's for lunch? Just like us. He exhorts them to be doers of the words, not just, not just listeners. Another evidence against them was how differently they treated people purely based upon socioeconomic status. Is that not us? We can add to that where their pants are hanging or what, what is being listened to by in their car. We definitely treat people differently. And he's talking about how wrong that is. It sees people from a human point of view and not God's point of view. 
And then ultimately in last week's very intense passage in chapter 2, where James tells them that faith that has no impact on your life is useless. It doesn't save or bless anyone. And he uses the example that you're familiar with where uh, somebody walks up to somebody who's naked and starving and says, be, be filled and clothed and warm and walks away. He said, what good is that for them? And, and he's, he's not talking about our salvation. Matthew Culbertson came up after his church last Sunday and pointed something out that I hadn't even noticed, but it really makes a point. He uses two examples, and both of those examples are talking about how it blesses others. The fact is, it doesn't save anyone in our community if all we do is come in here and hide and worship. If all we do is come into the church, there was a book uh, written years ago, and I, I, I think I know who the author is, but I'll mess it up. It's called Out of the Salt Shaker. Did anybody remember that book? Anybody remember who wrote it? Okay, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to misquote the author, so I'm not going to say, but it's a great book. And the whole book, all 200 pages, was about getting out of the salt shaker. We're the salt of the earth, and we like being in here. This is our comfortable place. We kind of all agree. We kind of all, we sing, we laugh, we enjoy each other. And then we leave, and, and, and we kind of be quiet until we come back together. And the whole point of the book was we need to get out of the salt shaker. Get out there. It is very important to notice once again, and this has been my fear every study, and you know that, that while bringing all of these evidences in his case to prove that there is a spiritual crisis of his readers, James continues to call them brothers and sisters. That is important because he considers these struggling folks his spiritual family under God. He never once leaves that out. We're going to get to a section, though, where you're going to notice that he redresses a certain group of people, and I'm not going to tell you who. We'll get to it later. But it is clear that he does not think they're his family. Wait until you see the stark difference. That's the problem of taking just a few verses at a time. You miss a change in tone, and there is one later in this letter, where I think he's addressing a certain group of people that are not believers, and boy, he does not hold back. But he doesn't doesn't address them in a gentle, loving family familial way like he does the rest of this letter. And that's important because if you don't understand that the predominant group of people he's writing to are his brothers and sisters, you will spend all of your time going, I got to do that or I'm not saved. To summarize the overriding principle of last week's conversation together here, it could be accurately said that your performance does not impact your position in God's family. However, your position in God's family and your voluntary surrender to your daddy will most definitely affect your performance. In other words, your performance is set in God or not set in God, or your position. You're either saved or not saved by God's work. And if you're saved, it's not because of your performance. But if you are truly saved, then we learned a couple weeks ago that the Holy Spirit has been implanted in you. And if the Holy Spirit has been implanted with you, then He is working in your life, and there is an effect on your performance. For some people, it's a bigger effect, and some people smaller, depending on their surrender. But there is fruit that is there, and there is effect. And the difficulty is we live in a culture that only thinks about salvation as heaven and hell. And that's not how the Scriptures work. This is about discipleship and growing up and seeing blind spots. In fact, what we are seeing in the the letter of James is is 1 Corinthians 5.12 lived out. Look at this with me. It isn't, Paul is writing to the church of Corinth, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders of the church, but it certainly is your responsibility to to judge those inside the church who are sinning. This is practical. This is a practical faith, and it affects our lives. And if we have a brother or sister or pastor 
whose performance is not being transformed at some level, then you have to address that with them out of family concern. If we have three kids and one of those three kids is doing drugs and nobody talks to that kid, that is not a loving family. Well, I don't want to judge. How loving is that? If if, if a family member keeps complaining that their forehead bleeds and you're like, well, where's it come from? I don't know. And you you follow them for a few days and find out they like to ram their head against a two-by-four, at some point you want to say, Mark, I discovered why your forehead is bleeding. Why? You keep running into a two-by-four. That's what people do who care about each other. And we live in a culture that is Satan has got us so twisted and upside down and backwards, we can't even love on each other. Well, I don't want to be judged by other Christians. They struggle too. Yes, they do. But judging isn't this big, you big jerk thing. It's come on, we can do this. Hang in there. I know you married a jerk. Nonetheless, they're God's jerks. Stay the course. We'll pray together for them. How are you doing? We all long for that. But it sure is scary to be that vulnerable, isn't it? Especially if you're the jerk. But James is the practical living out of that 1 Corinthians passage. Having said that, if God is speaking to you in this study, and I know He is because some of you have shared with me, and after reflecting on your life, you look in the mirror of this book, and you're wondering, is the Holy Spirit working in you? Do I see Him? What's wrong with me? I encourage you not to run to the pastor, but to run to Jesus. And here's why. He's the Savior. I'm a textual specialist. The church has trained you that when you're struggling, run to a theologian to tell you it's okay to struggle, and then once you find out you're still saved, then you can deal with whether or not you're going to surrender. This is a personal relationship with God much like your marriage. If every time you start mistreating your spouse, you run to your mother-in-law, it ain't going to be good for your marriage. She may offer you some insight. She may even encourage you to be a better husband or wife. But the truth is, you want to fix your marriage, it ain't through your mother-in-law. And I got to tell you something. For being a part of churches that claim that Catholicism is wrong, that there is no advocate between God and man but Jesus Christ himself, it strikes me crazy that we keep telling you to come talk to us. And I believe, look, I'm willing to talk with anybody and encourage people, but I believe that pastors and ministers and church leaders and authors have become a hindrance to people talking to God. This is personal between him and you. He killed his son for you. He loves you. He's chasing you. Don't go to somebody else to find out about him alone. Go to him. The, the application of this whole thing isn't get better. It's get on your knees. Go to God. And you don't have to go, oh, I'm such a loser. He knows you're a loser. He loves you anyway. That's why he sent Jesus, to make you a winner through the blood of Jesus Christ to empower you through the power of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't expect you to be better than you are. He expects the Holy Spirit to empower you to become better. Do you understand? If next time a pastor says, knock it off, you should say, tell the Holy Spirit to knock it off in me. The the point of personal application of, of, of the New Testament's teaching where we fall short is not get better, it's get broken. Look in the mirror. Too many times, as we talked about, and and I'm summarizing what we've learned so far, and then we're going to jump into three, because it's great. It's really good. 
Very excited. But too many of us are like a guy who walks into JCPenney with our wife and there's a great sale. And she's shopping and we look in the mirror and find out that we're a mess. Our shirt's not buttoned right. We're a little heavier than we thought we were and those mirrors are not thinning just enough. And we look and laugh and go on with our life without losing weight or fixing our shirt. That's what we do in the church. Oh, I'm a mess. What's for lunch? It's just what we do. Why? Because I'm just, I'm just so broken. God, I'm so broken. I need Chad to sing a song about my brokenness. Oh, I remember Amy Grant when she was 16. God, I'm broken. Oh, I'm sorry. I need communion. And God in heaven's going, you are so melodramatic. Just surrender. Surrender. Well, I don't know what I need to surrender. All of it. Uh, what part? All of it. That's the exhortation of this letter. Put on the righteousness that exists within you. You are the best quarterback ever. Get in the game. I'm not that good a quarterback. No, but he has implanted his spirit in you that throws touchdowns every play. This is real and it's true and it's life-changing and the people who don't believe it most are the church. And I'm here to tell you, Baptist, the Holy Spirit's real and He's working. And I'm here to tell you, Pentecostals, that the Holy Spirit isn't just relegated to worship. He is relegated to life change. And He is not in you threatening to send you to hell. He's in you going, you can be better than this because I can make you better. All you got to do is get out of the way. That's all you got to do. And that's really hard because we want to be more of a player than we are. All He's asking you to do is surrender. And in all of this study... All God is asking you to do is not figure out what areas are blind, but simply realize you are blind and he needs to make you see. That's what he does. He takes blind eyes, unsaved blind eyes, and brings them to himself through salvation. He takes blind spiritual eyes and helps you realize that you aren't what you think you are. For those of, us, for those of you in this room this morning that think you're doing pretty good, I've got news for you. You aren't as good as you think. For those of you who think you're doing, uh, who are not doing well, you're in better shape than you think. They're both true. It's, it's just walking with God. For some of us in this room, we simply need to put on the righteousness we've been given on the inside, on the outside, and that's a choice you make every moment of every day. Living out your faith. I choose to trust. That's going to take courage because you're still going to be afraid. We've talked about that. And for some of us, and I don't go here very often, but for some of you, you need to make it public. And we do that through baptism. It's time to take a stand. Look, I, I'm, I'm not ever, anybody who's been here more than six weeks and grew up Baptist knows that I'm not one. I'm not a good one. I happen to be one because our church gives to the cooperative program and I'm a pastor of a Southern Baptist church. But when it comes to being a Southern Baptist, I really stink at it. I mean, I don't even care. I just want to see people reached and encouraged. Having said that, Jesus left us baptism for you to say, look at me, watch me, keep me accountable. I'm ready to jump in fully. Galatians 2.20, you have been, my, uh, Paul said this, my old self has been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's how you do that, realizing you've been crucified. And you know what, men? It's not a woman's religion. It takes courage. It takes a stand. 
And your wife probably knows more about the Bible than you do. That's okay. I've got commentaries that know more about the Bible than me. That doesn't stop me from studying and teaching and encouraging people. Having said that, you do need to take a stand and say, I'm not going to live for myself anymore. There's just a time as a Christian. You want the peace and joy of the Lord? You want strength? There's a time. And Jesus left us baptism. It's not a complicated thing. For some of you, it's time. Take the stand. Well, I don't like people staring at me. It's exactly why you do it. He left you here not to hide in a corner, not to live in the, in the corner of a ranch. He left you here to be an ambassador. And that starts by taking a stand. You're not going to go to hell if you're not baptized. You're just always going to live in the shadows. Oh, pastor, that's kind of high and tight. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. You see, his instructions to the disciples were, you're going to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and you're going you're to make disciples, not Christians. And you're going to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. He's telling the story. You're going to disciple people. So get on with it. Be a disciple. That's what James is about. It's not a religious thing. This is not a theological thing. It's a spiritual thing. And it's real. And it's time to decide to give it up to the one who saved you and lives within you. Time to fight having a heart with divided loyalty. And with that, as you can imagine, James isn't done. Uh, he is not done with them yet. And God is not done speaking to us through James. And i got to tell you something. In the few minutes I have, this is going to be, whoa, because it was cool for me. James 3.1 starts like this. Dear brothers and sisters, and, it, and, and there it is again. I'm going to point it out every time. There's five chapters. He says it five times, and then other times he res- refers to them as God's kids. In five chapters, 12 times, he refers to them like this. He is making a point. I am writing to believers. He says this so much that it's easy to miss, but he says it so much because he's making a point. He is not talking. Uh, he is talking absolutely to spirit, his spiritual family about blind spots in their lives. Let's go back. 3-1. Not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. Remember, uh, this letter, when originally written, had no chapter breaks or verse breaks. And, and this verse gets kind of weird in that context. For instance, the verse right before it is James 2.26 that says, just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. And then his very next sentence is about um, not becoming a teacher. He goes from you, you, uh, that faith without any works is dead to don't be a teacher. And you know, if we weren't given chapter breaks and verse breaks, that would be an off-the-wall paragraph. To go from rebuking divided hearts to telling people not to seek to be teachers. Unless the people he is writing to have divided hearts. And are trying to place themselves as spiritual leaders because they don't understand how broken personally they are. We all have sat under pastors or teachers who could not control themselves on the softball field. Or the political, uh, or the political arena or speeding, or whose family is, not, is absolutely in crisis, or pastors or teachers who favor some in their flocks over others and thought to ourselves, physician, heal thyself. We've all been around. We've seen that. Apparently, some of these uncommitted folks are claiming to be spiritual leaders in the communities they live in, 
and are actually a spiritual mess. And James addresses that in chapter 3. Let's go through it now. Dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. Indeed, we all make many mistakes. For if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. We can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth. And a a small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches. Ah, going back to teachers. It's easy to make a grand speech. But a tiny spark can set a great chorus on fire. Forest on fire. (laughs) Easy for me to say. And among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness corrupting the entire body. It, <clears throat> it can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. Verse 7, people can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and curse come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this isn't right. Does a spring of water bubble out of both fresh water and bitter water? Does a fig tree produce olives or a grapevine produce fruit or figs? No. You can't draw fresh water from a salty spring. All right, here it goes. All of that, once again, all of this is evidence. All of this is addressing an issue, but he's fixing to make his point. Verse 13. If you are wise and understands God's ways, pause, take a breath. You claim to be wise and understand God's ways because you claim to want to be a teacher. So he's addressing, let me bring you to context, he's addressing a group of believers who not only have blind spots in their life, but they think they're doing spiritually well when in fact they're not, and he makes a case against them. And he says that the reason for this is you have a divided heart. These people are so blind that they actually think, despite the fact that they have all these blind spots, that they're spiritual leaders. And he says in verse 13, you, if, you, if you are wise and understand God's ways, do you get it? You claim to be a teacher. If you're really all that wise and you understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. This is such a great chapter. Bam. Too many folks back then wanted to be teachers and leaders of God's family when they never learned how to be his kid. Before you're a shepherd, you got to be a sheep. And boy, are they... Make that we in good company because the disciples did this very thing at the Last Supper. They're sitting around and Jesus tells them he's going to be arrested, killed, and after three days rise again. You remember this kind of in the back of your mind because that's when Peter said, we will follow you. You're going away. Where are you going? Let us follow. And Jesus says, you can't go where I'm going. Some theologians, and I don't know how to get to this. I'm just going to actually let me mellow it down to make it more accurate. Uh, theologians believe there are dozens of times that Jesus told them that he would have to leave them at one point, die, and resurrect from the dead. These guys just blew it off. They just... If you want to know where their heart was, listen to what they argue about at the table. They debate among themselves who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Even to the point where two disciples ask their mama to go to Jesus and ask him if one of them can sit on his right and one of them can sit on his left. So Jesus is talking about serving and ministering and dying, and they're talking about taking over control and leading. These guys are so backwards and upside down, they don't even know how ignorant they are, and they're asking to be made spiritual leaders of this new kingdom. It got so bad with these disciples 
that when he does in fact rise from the dead, something he told them over and over and over again would happen, he presents himself to Mary, Mary runs to them and tells them, and they think she's lying. Take a deep breath. Think about that. Jesus told these guys exactly what's going to happen. They don't get it. They don't want to get it. They're blind. Then it happens. And instead of going, oh, no way. That's what he said would happen. Yes, it's true. He, they didn't spend the three days going, oh, I hope he was right and he comes back. Let's just wait. They spent the three days going, what are we going to do now? I don't know. Let's go fishing, Peter says. And when it happens, they are so doubting, they are so blind that they disparage Mary. How insane do you have to be? How, how blind do you have to be? Only Peter kind of believes it. So when she addresses him, and, and Peter, it says, he gets up and he runs. And it actually says, you know, John ran with him. Followed him? And did you never notice that when they get to the tomb, John said he looked in, and it was then that he believed? So basically what you have is 11 guys hanging out in the upper room because they think Jesus is gone. They're trying to figure out how to save their own fannies. They're freaking out. The door's locked. Mary comes in and says, hey, he's alive. They call her a liar, except for Peter, who half-heartedly believes. Maybe he really believes. He's hoping it's true because he knows he deserves hell. He just slapped him in the face, the God of the universe. So he runs as fast as he can. He gets there. He's kind of believing, but John still didn't believe. He's actually maybe worried about Peter, so he's kind of following. Check out what happened. Let's see if the body's been stolen. But it says that he did not believe until he looked in and saw that the tomb was empty. John himself doubted. Why? Blind spots. And what are they thinking about before his arrest? How can we be the greatest in the kingdom? It's exactly what these people were doing in, in James. Our flesh equates spiritual health with upfront stage gifts. And that is not how God or James, for that matter, sees it. Look at James 3.13 again. If you are wise and understand, if you are what you say you are, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. Which is, by the way, absolutely consistent with the previous section uh, of this letter, which is saying that real godly faith is shown by genuine changed life, not spiritual rhetoric. It's not the best preacher that's the most spiritual. It's not the best worship leader. It's not the best Sunday school teacher. It's the person who actually proves it by living an honorable life in humility. Verse 14. But if you are bitterly jealous and there's selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth by boasting and lying. <laughs> now, maybe this chapter is more meaningful to me because I'm a pastor surrounded by boasting and lying preachers. But you know it in your heart. Do you know what a preacher does when he can't live up to what he expects his congregation to live up to? He preaches louder. He gets more dramatic. What does your child do when you catch them lying about stealing the cookie? I can't believe you don't believe me. Mama hates me. Mama hates me. Mama doesn't hate you. Mama believes you. Here, have another cookie. Changing the subject. A pastor who tells his congregation off on a regular basis, who can't live up to it, becomes better at his craft because his heart is impure. It's not stupid. People do it. They do it all the time. It's sales. And that's what he's doing here. That's what he's addressing. Don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. I remember a time. I have never, listen, let me give you one, two examples. 
Do you ever notice how preachers all seem to have a story or evangelists? I was in a plane and I, was, I got to witness. I have never flown and been able to witness. I, I just, maybe it's because I drink and smoke on planes, but, <laughs> but, but the, fact, the fact is, there, I, there was a story, there was a story that went around the 70s and 80s about, and, and you've probably all heard this story, and maybe some of you have actually heard the preacher who, uh, who, who claims it was his truth, because there's a bunch of them that do. But there's a story about a guy who's flying, and he's sitting in the plane, and his food comes, his meal comes. And he's eating, and he notices the girl next to him. Do you know the story? He notices the girl next to him isn't eating, so he starts a dialogue. Oh, why aren't you eating? Would you like to share mine? Are you ill? Are you okay? Oh, I'm fine. I'm just a princess in Satan's army. And you see, we're fasting every Thursday of the week so that to bring down the leaders of the Christian church. And it's a very powerful story when told by a preacher. But about half the time, the preacher says, I was flying a few weeks ago. And this happened. How do I know? Because I've heard at least five men tell that story as if it's their own. Four of them are lying. Do you know what the, uh, one of the main problems is with preachers today? Plagiarism. Did you know that? I know of a pastor who's got a church of 3,500 people. And he was preaching one morning about his trip he and his wife took to France. And he talked about the glorious things he visited and he made a spiritual point. It was a good message. There's only one problem. He never went to France. And a couple of his elders confronted him and he lost his ministry over it because he was, in effect, lying. I have somebody in the church that just asked me the other day, how do I deal with somebody I know is preaching somebody else's messages and taking credit for it? When your heart is dry and you're living a lie, boasting and lying is what covers. You see, there's an element of this that's performance. You know that? But after a while, if you spend enough time staring at somebody, you find out what's true and what's not. This has become so pervasive in our culture that people actually believe that if they don't leave, leave church feeling guilt, they have not heard from the Holy Spirit. You've all heard that, right? Unless I get some of that conviction of God, I don't feel like I've been there. I'm looking for a preacher to beat me up. I'll tell you what, let me just beat you up before and then we'll have fun at church. Actually, I'm not a violent person by nature, only when I'm preaching. The, the fact is that there's a lot of arrogance and boasting and lying. And why? Because, because there's a reality inside that we're not measuring up to the standards we set up for you. Most of the time, the standards the church sets up for you are, are higher than God's expectations for you. You see, all God really wants from you is not a better faithfulness and more holiness. What he wants from you is intimacy with him. The rest takes care of itself. You fall in love with your wife, you're going to be a better husband. My wife loves to antique shop. I hate it. If you love her enough, you'll love it. There's something about sitting back and watching Julie decorate our house that just brings me joy. Unless I come home late at night from an elders meeting and the lights are out, then it hurts. Think about it. The house has been rearranged and I stub my toe on the rearranged furniture. But there is something about taking her dress shopping. I, I know that scares you being from California, but I've never worn a dress in my life. But you know what? There's something about watching her find that perfect piece of clothing that she thinks makes her beautiful that I can't run fast enough to the cash register because I love her. I'm not a perfect man, but there are things that bring me joy that I fellowship with her in, and that's how it is with God. You have spent most of your Christian life being told the areas of your life that are screwed up. And, 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 and then if you only fix those areas, if you get rid of porn, if you get rid of lust, if you get rid of lying, cheating, stealing, 
You'll do fine. There'll be joy. I'm here to tell you that if you get rid of all those things, there'll only be anger, bitterness, and frustration. That's why most deacons are grumpy. Because unless you place it, replace it with the Holy Spirit, the Word of God implanted in you, the joy that comes with that, you will just be a miserable dry drunk. The Holy Spirit comes in and transforms. And what he's addressing here is people that are trying to <coughs> cover up their blindness with lying and boasting. Verse 15, for jealousy and selfishness are, are, are not God's kind of wisdom. Wow. Such things are earthly and unspiritual and even demonic. For, whether there is, for wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, you will find disorder and evil of every kind. This is a reference to his, con, uh, his comments back in chapter 2 about prejudices. <clears throat> what he's doing here is he is relisting everything, or most of the things he's already talked about, he's about to relist them there. This is, a one, this is one well-written letter, because now he's taking what he's already discussed and talking to these people going, and I'm going to be a spiritual leader. And he's saying, you don't realize how messed up you are. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above is, first of all, pure. It is also peace-loving. It is gentle at all times and willing to yield to others. Whoa, there are not many preachers that are willing to yield. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good, de and, and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism, is always sincere, and those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. We'll pick this up next week as he gets to a summary statement and what he wants us to do with James. But this morning, I want to turn now and head to home. Because there's something I want to talk about that has happened to all of us, and I don't think even any, most of us really even recognize it. I think that we are pushed, and many of us claim to desire to be a great man or woman for God. I think that is the truth in most of our lives. This is not new. I think they were facing it. I think John the Baptizer struggled with this with his followers. Do you know, uh, interesting information, you know John's followers, John the Baptizer, I don't like to call him John the Baptist because people go Southern, Northern, Central, what, what Baptist? <laughs> Just baptized, folks, that's what he did. But you know, he, uh, he was this great guy calling people to repentance, but his followers weren't that great. They were interested in the religion of John, not the relationship with the shepherd that John offered. How can we say this? Because actually, are you aware that that the people that Paul is addressing as false teachers in Galatia were actually John's followers. They were Judaizers. They wanted to marry Jesus Christ with old-time Jewish religion. But it is interesting because there's a story at one time that you're familiar with from John 3 where they come to John, their teacher, and they say this, John 3, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, is also baptizing people now. And everybody is going to him instead of coming to us. How'd you like that in the Bible about you forever? You know, Jesus has taken some of our crowd away and the offerings have gone down significantly. John replied, no one can receive anything unless God gives it to him from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you I'm not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the best man is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. 
We live in a time, and they did apparently back here in James's day, we live in a time when everybody who preaches feels like they need to write a book or sell a sermon series or upgrade it to a bigger flock and a better following, or every worship leader needs a CD or T-shirts with their names on them. It seems like it's not enough to be faithful. We want bigger and better. Julie and I have been talking the, last week about some blogs that she's been reading. And one of them this last week was talking about a character in the New Testament named Apelles, somebody you're very familiar with, right? Apelles, you know, Apelles. You're looking at me like you've never heard of this guy. Well, if you go to Romans 16, 10, this is what it says about Apelles. It's coming to a screen near you. 10121 needs to go get their kid. Never mind. I'm going to read what it says about Apelles. Romans 16, 10. Greet Apelles, a man whom Christ approves. There it is. Now you remember Apelles. No? This is Romans, right? Probably the greatest book on grace in the New Testament. His name is mentioned. Do you know who Apelles is? Probably not, because most of the time we want to be like Paul or John. Heck, we grew up being taught dare to be a Daniel. Remember that? Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to kill your teacher when she does so wrong. Whatever that thing is. <laughs> dare to be a Daniel. You, from, from the earliest days of our Christianity, you were always told to be like Peter or Stephen or John or somebody else. And you know what? In the meantime, throughout Acts, there's tons of nameless people who are men and women of God who simply lived out their faith. Apelles, for instance, a good man who Christ approves. Who wants to be like Apelles? Everybody wants to aspire to be like Peter, a great communicator. Who wants to be like Apelles, a faithful man? Whatever happened to godly mechanics and teachers and moms and dads? Whatever happened to just simple, humble, walking with God? A man who Christ approves. We all feel like we got to get up here and sing. Like, how would you like to serve in the church? Well, I don't sing and I can't teach. I, I didn't ask that. We've been convinced that godly people do this. And i got to tell you, godly people perform well, but it doesn't make them godly. Apelles was a man whom Christ approved. Another version of the Bible said he was tested and approved by God. Get this. These half-hearted Christian Jews were desiring to be recognized as teachers and spiritually healthy individuals within the Christian community despite not being of wise sight and humility. And to that, James writes, James 3, 17 and 18, but the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is peace-loving and gentle at all times and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. One of these devotions that Julie shared with me this week ended with this thought. It was a prayer. In the midst of this world that often presses us to desire to be more and more and more and more, what would happen if we woke up each day seeking less and less and less? Less me, more God. Less likes, more love. Less grandstanding, more grace. Less power, more peace. Maybe tonight when we rest our heads on our pillows, our prayer to God might sound something like this. 
a little bit less of me tomorrow, God, more of you for your glory always. Amen. What would happen if God planted in the middle of East Texas a church that didn't strive to be great in North Lufkin or in Africa or to have the best teaching or best Sunday school or the best children's program or the best lights, but there was just a church in East Texas that simply wanted to be faithful. Less me, more you. Maybe that's the problem. We feel like we're hip enough to deserve more people, more fame. And God's going, I'll give you what I want to give you. The question is, will you be content or will you be Jonah? We're going to study Jonah one of these days. Maybe that'll be our next book. Have you ever studied Jonah? None of you will name your grandchildren after them. He's not a flattering character. And it ends worse than it starts. Do you get it? So here, okay, I want you to end breathing. Here's what I want you to do. Don't work so hard. Don't strive so much. Take a deep breath and exhale. And if you're realizing you're not all that you should be, which is anybody who's listening, thank God for mercy and tell him you're ready for him to change you into what he wants you to be, not what you think you should be. Lord Jesus, may Carpenter's Way be your church, led by you as the good shepherd. And may every one of us, whether elder, Sunday school teacher, janitor, sheep, May we simply become humble and exactly what your Holy Spirit wants to make us into. In Jesus' name, amen. Bible study is going to start in about 10 minutes.